Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Um, of course, this podcast was launched from the Pop Sequentialism uh, exhibition and catalog, and uh, we record weekly at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. Uh, also um, brought to you by Lovely Day Zeus Gallery, and I want to also talk about the new 30, um, Gallery 30 South, which will be in Pasadena, which um, I'll also be very connected to and hope that you'll come and visit. And want to talk about the fact that later this month at the last bookstore in downtown Los Angeles, um, I'll be giving a lecture on the rise of sequential art. But right now, right here, I have with me a very special guest, and it's uh, Steve Rude, um, one of the really very important people to emerge from the independent comic scene in the in the late 70s and early 80s and um, to me the person who I think is most responsible for bringing painting actual painting back into comics so um, Steve welcome to the show thank you very much Matt yeah this is um this is a lot of um, what I love about the show and what I why I love to be able to do this is because it puts me face to face with people that I've always wanted to talk to anyways and then as a result of running La Luz de Sus Gallery um, I'm able to kind of interact on a completely different level in bringing people in front of a different group of observers and buyers and collectors than maybe they might be used to. And so I would be remiss if I didn't say that you, you have a show that opens tonight as we record this. And uh, this, this podcast will go live on Sunday. The show will still be up. Um, and we're doing a, a full front room of your paintings covering some of the comic book illustration work and then your more personal work. And it's a full room of Steve Rude. And um, I'm really happy to have been able to uh, to bring this out to L.A. Now, is this the first full solo um, painting exhibition? It is. Um, as I recall, I had something many, many years ago uh, when I was still living in in, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time I ever had a solo show. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And so now, so that's, when did you move from Madison, Arizona? I moved in 1988 in August, and I moved out to L.A., for two reasons. One was to become a better artist and try to find a school that could teach me things that I didn't wasn't learning back in Madison. Mm-hmm. And the other reason was to see if I could uh, break into the animation business with uh, Nexus as an animated TV show. Right. I remember reading about that um, back when it was happening. Comics Journal was giving some coverage to it. I think Amazing Heroes was around at the time, which is one of my favorite publications about comics. And... Um, and you and, and, and Mike Barron, in your partnership in, in doing Nexus, were really reaching that generation that was just older than me who got me into comics. So I was, I'm, I'm 45 years old, and so when I first walked into a comic shop in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, between Boston and Salem, um, and there, there weren't a lot, but I had seen an episode of uh, Simon and Simon, and I looked in the yellow pages um, under comic books, there was nothing, but under bookstores, there were a couple of stores that had full like ads, like, oh, we carry comics. And I got on my bike and I went downtown, and the guys that worked at that shop were probably about eight to 10 years older than me, and they became my mentors. And all of them invariably loved Nexus. They loved a lot of stuff that Mike was writing, like Badger. Um, this is before Frank Miller's Dark Knight came out. And so the, um, the hot comics on the rack were all independents. It was everything being published at Capitol and at First before Eclipse kind of scooped up a lot of the stuff that, um, that had been on First. So there was uh, Grim Jack and um, American Flag. And what made Nexus, I think, really stand out was I think the attitude of it, you know, being a superhero 50s sci-fi kind of mashup that um, it brought with it a lot of that kind of daring do of the kind of whether the adventures of Robin Hood 
and all that kind of history of action and literature that had been brought to the big screen. But then this whole other fascinating that, fascination that most people that would work in and, and love comics was sci-fi. And it was the only thing that really mixed them. And it was definitely the only thing that mixed them well. And so how did you come to meet Mike Barron and, and come to work on, on Nexus? The, the situation with meeting Mike Barron came about because one Madison is a pretty small town and I was living on campus at the time mm-hmm. at the at the university YMCA mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I was always reminded of that because at three in the morning a bunch of drunken frat boys would walk by and start singing that song <laughs> which we all know and uh, <clears throat> but um, I walked into one of the local uh, independent newspapers kind of like the LA Weekly mm-hmm. would be and uh, they recommended that I talk to this guy named Mike Barron because he works at a uh, where did he work? He worked at an insurance building and couldn't stand his job, but really wanted to be a comic book writer. Mm-hmm. And he he needed an artist to make his visions come true. So we ended up meeting at the steps of the Memorial Union mm-hmm. in Madison on a very nice sunny day. I think it was in August. And we we met and we talked. It was a brief meeting. And um, and uh, he gave me a script. He'd already had something that he had that he had written called mm-hmm. Encyclopedia Salesman about an 18-year-old kid <clears throat> that uh, was walking around after the Holocaust trying to sell encyclopedias door-to-door. Wow. And that was his first script that we illustrated. It was 24 pages long. Mm-hmm. It took me about a year to do. <laughs> <laughs> I lettered it and inked it as well. <clears throat> and that's how the whole thing got started with Mike Barron. Wow. And so that's that's late 70s? That would have been uh, 19... I moved to Madison in 1978 from Waukesha, where I was going to school mm-hmm. uh, in Milwaukee, in art school in Milwaukee. So when I officially flew the coop from my, my parents' house, that was 1978. And that's Milwaukee School of Art and Design. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, the, um, so it, it, between 78 and 1981, when Nexus launches, um, I imagine you were doing some other collaborative work with him and probably getting ahead of the, the, um, the curve or ahead of the deadlines because... The um the publishing schedule I th- was Nexus monthly or was it bi monthly when it first started? As I recall, it was at least at least bi monthly. I yeah. would say that you know the people that were publishing at Capital Comics obviously wanted to be proceed cautiously mm-hmm. with a couple of newcomers. So I believe it was bi monthly. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, and um, we talk about this a lot. It's funny. This is the that kind of right around 1980, right before the direct market came in a few years later and, and affected. Um, more companies like Marvel and then there was like there's the difference between Capital Comics and then there was the Capital Distribution and how um, that war between Capital and Diamond caused some big problems for some independent um, titles and publishers but back in those days the primary guys were Aardvark Vanaheim out of Canada so you had Dave Sim who was encouraging everybody to publish their own comics and um, was taking meetings regularly with the guys at, 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 um, at DC um, not the executives, but the people producing their content and saying, you guys need to self-publish. And there was Capital. And first was starting out around that same time. Um, and Pacific, I think, had been around. And that was pretty much the whole world that wasn't um, Marvel and DC. Um, and then the the kind of other, the Gold Key was still somewhat around and Harvey was still somewhat around. 
but um, you never saw that stuff in actual comic book shops. You very rarely even saw them on the newsstand. You know, Archie it has always been around. But as far as like the bulk of comic book superhero and um, the major consumption of sequential, um, that was coming out either through Marvel and DC or just that handful of indie publishers. Now, certainly there had been a few people, and there's Last Gasp and Ripoff Press in San Francisco who had done the undergrounds. But um, if you saw anything else, it was going to be a one-off black and white comic that someone had gotten enough money together to be able to self-publish, and you almost never saw an issue number two, and um, which was what made kind of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles such a surprise and a revelation when they did start publishing basically biannually. And, um, and I think when you look at that model, you see how difficult it was to put together an independent comic. But um, apparently you and Mike take this idea into Capitol and they're like, yeah, we want to do this. And the first few issues were black and white. That's right. Yeah. And um, was it issue four that went color? It was issue four, yeah. We had two, uh, we had three oversized, I guess they were like considered magazine format. Yeah. Uh, why they did those that larger format, I don't know. But they eventually came to their senses <clears throat> and reduced the size to regular comic book size and went went to color. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because Love and Rockets kind of did the opposite. When Love and Rockets had started out as a comic book size and then went to that kind of magazine size that Fanagraphics started to do regularly. And that's around the same time. That's like 1982, I think, so a year later. So you guys beat, you know, the um, the explosion over at Fanagraphics by, by a good year. So now when, when it went color, were you coloring it as well? No, we, uh, we uh, actually um, recruited a guy from Canada named George Freeman who was working on the Captain Canuck book, mm-hmm. and I believe Captain Canuck had folded by then, so our timing to get George was good. Mm-hmm. And he lasted a couple issues, and then we, <clears throat> we eventually, eventually found a guy local in Madison named uh, Les Dorscheid, and he colored the, the books for the duration. Wow. And so now... What's interesting, what I always loved about about Nexus, was that any other comic book you pulled off the newsstand, mostly newsprint stuff from Marvel and DC, and then DC decided to go Baxter. Most of the independents had started out on Baxter board and um, on thicker paper and better paper, but the color in Nexus had just a completely different look to it. Like it, it, it was, it wasn't or it didn't seem like it was just standard four colors. Like most comics looked like they just had one color blue, one color red, you know, one color um, yellow, one color green. And however those layered when it printed was how it would look. And and often it looked terrible. And um, I think that Marvel had a slightly better grasp than DC on on that. And when you see, when they did the reprints of the classic, um, like Teen Titans, we'll say, and I I know that you ended up doing uh, some fill-in on Teen Titans um, after this, but that when they first bumped that Tales from the Teen Titans to Baxter paper, it was just that same color on that same paper, on, on a better paper, and it just looked garish. But Nexus just looked great. I mean, it, there was a reason why those guys that were pretty savvy about comics and had grown up reading, you know, those classic Neil Adams um, Batman stories, and then the Marshall Rogers, you know, Jokerfish stuff and detectives, that they kind of zeroed in on what was great about comics were fascinated and just enthralled with Nexus because there was this whole other type of color going on in it. Well, for <clears throat> since 1938, comics were printed on uh, newsprint, which is a very absorbent paper. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you tended to get uh, colors that uh, kind of melded in, in a soft focus kind of a way over the line art. When, when uh, the 80s came around and people 
wanted to print on better paper, the so-called Baxter paper, uh, <clears throat> the scarishness you were talking about, was a result of uh, uh, bright white paper and colors that didn't absorb into the paper. So uh, that continued for far too long, and <clears throat> the printing process with comics to this moment is printing that tends to be way too dark as yeah. far as the coloring goes. Mm-hmm. And they've never found a way to solve it. I would think after 25 years, they would have figured it out. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is, and I mean, you read about this. You've been reading about this in, in comics journals since probably the late 70s, that there's this idea that the publishers just really don't care, that um, that they know that their product is going to go in, and by the time they find out there's a problem, because they, they don't really have anybody doing quality control at the printer, for the comics and the last thing they want to do is let an artist walk into a a printing facility because they're afraid that everything's going to go offline and it's going to hold everything up because you're going to have standards about the way that your work appears and i think anybody who knows anything about you is knows that you have an incredibly high standard that one of the things that maybe has slowed up your output is that you don't want to put anything out there that that you're not happy to have your name attached to well one of the things that that people may <clears throat> misconceive about me is they think they think that I have such high standards. To me, it's just that other people just have such low, low standards. standards. Gotcha, gotcha. That, yeah, that's the other side of that that uh, that view for sure. And there, there certainly seems to be a lot of that out there. But then there's also, I think, that um, because you work primarily independently, you have the ability to say no. And I think that a lot of people, and you can you can look at all the people that are winning winning awards these days and I, I love Frank Whiteley's work. Frank Whiteley's not a fast um, penciler and um, I think his economy line is his strength that it's not that he's super technical it's that he knows when to leave his drawing alone and that is a slow process for him and so his books constantly wind up shipping late which is a publisher's nightmare but um, you know that at the end of the day I don't think he's going to have too many ideas about how DC or um you know, name that publisher is, is, is putting the work out because he feels like he's done his job. I know that he did take anchors off of his work a long time ago because he was really unhappy with the way that his work was being inked. And so now, um, which is very possible now and was not possible then, you can just contrast, you know, the, the digital file after you draw it, you can, you know, photograph it and you can contrast those pencils to get that darkness. And then you don't lose any of the, um, of the, the technical detail that was in there. And, you know, you hear the horror stories about Vince Coletta inking, you know, Jack Kirby. And Jack Kirby's like, I don't want that guy touching my work anymore. And him erasing Russ Heath, you know, entire portions of the, of the page when he, was, when he was inking the work and killing that detail. Um, what was your experience like working outside of, of the indies and working for DC and Marvel? Well, I, th- I think working for those companies was part of what convinced me that I, I really uh, was much more comfortable, Matt, taking control of my work in, in a way that uh, just seemed like a logical step for me. If you want to control over uh, <clears throat> all the aspects of what the thing is going to look like when it comes out, and mostly that has to do with making sure things uh, don't go wrong, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> like we brought up the coloring situation as being so dark. Uh, I had that problem solved uh, probably overnight when I realized that uh, the printing was getting too dark, and I just called up the printer and talked with the along with the designer. We made a conference call, and we figured it out in five minutes. Yeah, and it's been it's been a foolproof thing ever since. I believe in in I think smart people know how to solve problems. That's part of what you have to do is uh, as somebody who uh, 
has got a brain in their head. Yeah. And I don't I don't believe that uh, if something's going wrong, you you have to put up with it. You simply have to be a good communicator mm-hmm. and find a way to take what's going wrong and make it go right. Yeah. I think part of it's this too. And having we've published at La Luz de Jesus Press, I think we've published over 50 art books at this point. And we're kind of maniacs about quality control, but we, we're not doing these monthly. And I think that what happens is that, especially at a publishing house where they maybe have, I mean, if they have as few as 12 and as many as, you know, 50 titles coming out a month, that the ability for anybody to do any kind of serious quality control goes out the window when, they, when they're giving a lot, of, a lot of tasks to maintain. But um, when you do have the ability to focus on your own work, you get to give it that attention. And we've noticed that we request, you know, print proofs of, of the pages and sometimes the printers have been really surprised. They're like, oh, wow, you know, people don't even ask for those anymore. And it's the it's going to cost you, you know, 75 bucks in FedEx, you know, to get it sent over and get it approved and send it back if you have notes for it. And um, you're right. Oftentimes our number one thing is this is too dark, you know, um, and it's you need to hit this with some some white under it so that the color is preserved, um, depending upon the type of paper that you're using, um, you know, do you. You know, it's like you look at the paper and say, wait a minute, is this the type of paper you're printing on? This paper looks a little yellow. You realize that they've pulled sample paper and it's not even the the, the same type of paper that's going to go in the book. And if you don't notice those things, and a lot of times you'll see like, why is everything so yellow? You know, are th- are those types of mistakes are, why is this so green? This is supposed to be blue. And you realize that um, that someone at the plant has run a different job and they've left their settings and they don't realize until they've run a, a certain portion of pages to reset And, you know, it's one of the things that you, I don't know if it's better or worse. Um, You know, we we always like to to print locally if we can. The cost is so high that it's it's almost guarantees that most people who are publishing art books are publishing in China or Korea. And so you need to have somebody who can speak, you know, the language with with the local technicians and tell them what's wrong with what's coming through. And if you have that line of communication, then you're able to get a little bit more control. I think that locally, and when you work with um, with local printers, that the cost that they absorb in getting things right, that they're going to limit how many changes you get. But um, gosh, we could probably talk about publishing all day. <laughs> I got to say, I saw the book, you know, when, when you dropped off the book and the, on the slipcases, and it's great looking. Thank you. You know, I, I imagine that you probably had a couple of rounds back and forth on on pushing the color here and there because it's perfect. That 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 could well be, and I, I I'm glad that uh, yeah, I thought it turned out really good too. Yeah, and I mean, I can pick that stuff to pieces all day long, and that was one of the first things I noticed when when I when um, Janelle handed me the book, and I was like, this this is really this looks great. Like you've you've done some really good quality control. <clears throat> and we're talking about the Steve Root Artist in Motion book, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. Good. And I also saw the um, we we opened up the box of the um of the newsprint, and that looks fantastic. And I mean, that's almost impossible to do. So it's like you know, it's putting the effort in to to make the product what you want it to look like is the best way to hook people into knowing that they can trust you when they when they buy stuff. And as comics become more expensive, and as people have less attention for necessarily um you know printed books that you want to make sure that you're giving them the best product. And I think, you know, anybody out there who, if you're not familiar with Steve Rude's work, go out and get his book because it's a great way to um, to realize just kind of the impact that he's had. But, you know, not just um, among peers, but, I mean, I don't know that 
Marvel or DC would have necessarily taken a chance on you know, an artist like Alex Ross, if they hadn't already seen your work. And I'm sure that you're the type of guy that is always on the list. It's like, oh, we'd love to get Steve Rude to do this cover. And it's just a, a functionality of they're not paying what you're worth or you're working on other stuff. The last time Marvel called me up to do work for them, they were offering, uh, they were cutting their cover page rate in about a third of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And that was after they were bought by Disney. So go figure. Yeah. I think that... Um, and I understand when the numbers go down that there's less money on the table, but um, you know it's still the in the bigger picture sense of things. You don't have movies if you don't have the comics to launch the brand, and they can't pretend that the tail is wagging the dog. Um, I will say this: that getting clearance when I did uh, my book on on comic art, getting clearance from Disney was a piece of cake. Like they understood that if it was a you know, a book um, written for um, academic purposes that there was there was no reason to say no. And actually, everybody I contacted was fairly easy. It was just a functionality of with the independence of, oh, you have to get permission from the creators, not from us, because we just publish for them. But um, I think Mike Allred is somebody else that would probably have to point to Nexus and be like, that book had to have had an influence on what he does. The color, and his wife does his coloring, and it's phenomenal color. But the kind of playfulness of it has that playfulness that Nexus had. And the line, while I think that his work is a little bit more Doug Wildey and yours is maybe a little bit more Alex Toth, these are two guys that came out of the same place at the same time. Uh, well, <clears throat> to comment on, 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 the, on, the, on the influence influential factor, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I think that's one of the, the most important things you can do in your life is to is to be brave enough to publish or to go about doing the things that you believe you need to be doing in your lifetime, mm-hmm. <clears throat> get them out there and then see what happens. If it happens to be something that influences people um, after the, after uh, after that fact, then that's a really good thing because um, <clears throat> that's that, I believe that's part of the cycle of life that I want to be part of and knowing, knowing that uh, I gave, I maybe gave a little uh, helpful shove to people or a permission slip to uh, try something of their own. Maybe they were hesitant to, to do it before they saw something before it um, that uh, they thought was something related to what they may want to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's a, that's a, a critical thing about uh, something that you want to have said about your lifetime of, of of what you've tried to accomplish is that other people saw what you did and felt comfortable uh, following you with work that uh, they wanted to do uh, themselves. Right. We're going to take our first break right here and then um, hear a little word from our sponsors. And when we get back, we'll talk some more with, um, especially I think on the bravery aspect of um, of Steve Rude's influence on comics and you know just the, the challenges that face independent comic artists. So uh, listen to a word from one of our, our people and we'll be right back after that. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. And we have with us today Steve Rude, um, of course, one of the most influential um, painters um, to have work in comic, in comicdom and in sequential art. And um, what we're talking about, you know, is, is the bravery to do things new. And I think that it's, it's almost impossible not to talk about um, how brave it was to open your life up to a documentarian. And there have been very few comic professionals who have done that. You know, very famously, um, 
you know, Terry Zwigoff had done Crumb and uh, got an Oscar nomination for it. And the effect of that film um, was tremendous. You know, two of, of Robert's brothers committed suicide um, after that film came out. Um, and, you know, one of the things about being the focus of someone else's study is having to give control of your message away to someone else when they when they endeavor in a project. And um, so the film... Uh, Rude Dude is available on Amazon Prime, which is where I saw it. And it's it's kind of an amazing, um, you know, just presentation of, number one, an iconic um, artist in, in the comics industry. But it's sort of like, I think some people had thought for a while that you had just left comics and didn't understand, you know, number one, the hardships of being a professional artist, if, you, if you're not familiar with them. It, it's It's not like any other industry. Um, and there's not a guarantee of a payday. And, um, and number two, that, um, that in, as an independently published artist, that you're at really the control of your subscribers and more importantly to the changing model of distribution. And so one thing that, um, that w- became a center part of, of the documentary has been um, your battle and diagnosis with bipolar disorder. And that's an incredibly um, brave thing to allow someone into in sharing with the rest of the world because I think that it was Glenn Close who did a couple of PSAs and, and she said it like this and I thought it was really, really succinct. And it was, you'd never stop hanging out with somebody because they had cancer. But in cancer is a disease and it's a disease that can that can kill. But when people have illnesses that are mental illnesses, there are people that will just back away and just not talk and, um, and you know, don't want to have any of the deep discussions or, um, or somehow blame the person who has the illness for their illness. And it's, it's still kind of a stigma in that it's difficult for some people to come forward. And so when you did and you, you granted access to that, I think it was very, very helpful to other people who maybe have the condition. But, um, you know, before we started um, recording and I had asked, you know, about talking about this, I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk about the fact that, you know, you have maybe used um, your condition as a sort of, um, you know, a positive thing. And you're like, well, no, I think it's actually been the opposite, that it has been very, very challenging. And so what do you think, um, what do you think has been the best and worst aspects of, of not the the illness because I think people can every illness is is individual and the way that people handle it is individual and it's I don't think it necessarily speaks universally but that by going on record do you think that it's it's helped the best aspect of it Matt was the fact that there are so many people out there that feel isolated and and utterly cut off from uh, from other people by virtue of having this uh, this affliction and the worst aspect aspect about it um, <clears throat> is just the fact that you have it, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> and to compound that, it's hard to find people that know how to treat this stuff. There's a lot of people that will give you certain kind of drugs, mm-hmm. like in the case with myself, that actually made the condition far worse than it had to be. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I went through at least five, six, maybe seven doctors before I found somebody who happened to be somebody. That was a, a, a homeopath, natural path. You know, this is a kind of doctor that a lot of these Western doctors reject entirely with their approach. <clears throat> well, they're the only ones that ever helped me. Mm-hmm. They helped balance the, the chemicals that weren't being produced in my brain 
to make me uh, level and uh, level-headed mm-hmm. and functional. And I know when I, I had absolutely no idea about any of that aspect of, of why I hadn't seen your work for a long time. And I think the documentary, number one, I was like, well, I was like, Steve Rude's never had a, an exhibition? Like that to me was like, the, like a really big surprise. And so I immediately reached out and I was like, I'd love to show you work. You know, we've, we've got a, a position in the schedule. Let's give it a year and a half and, um, and let's see where we can land on this. And um, so I think that in that aspect, I was, I was really, really blown away. And then, of course, you have people like, um, you know, is Drew in the documentary too? Drew Struzan? Yeah. Um, no, I think we asked him to be part of it, and he, I think he was busy making his own documentary, so it never happened. <laughs> but you, you were you were actually hanging out with him yesterday. I did. Yeah, yeah. he's he's. Uh, I, I I've come to 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 see Drew is a is a very important person in my life, and uh, he's not a guy that that gives his trust to very many people. He had a a very disruptive childhood that mm-hmm. you know obviously uh, kind of uh, made him <clears throat> a person who uh, is is hesitant. To give this trust to anyone, mm-hmm. as as you can well imagine, uh, I had a, uh, on the other hand, had a great childhood. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> I would say that most of the, the wonderful things that came about, uh, in la- later in life, was a result of having the great childhood. Yeah, not not so with Drew. So <clears throat> I've gotten to know him over the years, and uh, I consider him the, the greatest living artist, uh, the greatest living artist. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the the value of his aggregate body of work. It's got to be up there with, you know, seriously, um, Pollock, you know, the big, the big money um, blue chip guys, um, just because his work has appeared on so many editions of editions of editions of the things that he's done. I didn't even realize until uh, maybe a week ago, and it's funny because um, I was like, oh, I didn't know Drew lived in in my hometown, you know, in my town, not in my hometown, but um, that... um, he had done most of the album covers that I loved as a kid and didn't realize he had done them. And they're iconic. You know, there's Welcome to My Nightmare, you know, the, you know, Alice Cooper album cover. But, um, you know, most people, of course, know him for the Star Wars stuff and for a lot of the Amblin, Amblin stuff. These two styles don't look alike, really at all. And yet, once you look at the um, that Alice Cooper album cover, you're like, he must have done these other album covers that I had as, as a kid, too. And I mean that twelve inch by twelve inch format was perfect, right? You know, That's for, right. for yeah. buying new art and, and pulling that out and reading the liner notes and everything. And I think we lost a little bit of that when uh, when things started to go digital. But um, you know, albums I think this past month finally overtook digital download sales. So vinyl's back. That's incredible. I never <laughs> thought I'd see that day. Too. Cassettes are back, which I love. You know, and I um I know they don't sound as good as either the um the CD or the um or the album, but it's, uh, I love cassettes. And, um, you know, I think, um, one other thing I think that we saw in, in the documentary too is, I mean, your family is a unit. I mean, you guys are really close knit. You guys kind of, um, roll together and it's, it's kind of really, it was really impressive to see, um, in setting up the exhibition. I've, I've been in contact with your wife throughout the whole process and she's fantastic. Um, you know, to the point that, 
you live not too far away from where my my mom lives now with my sister and i've been trying to schedule a time like if i was going to be in town i'd go visit you guys because Absolutely. It, you know yeah. it felt like a really extended family like there's a real genuineness there and you know and and seeing you in person and talking to you i also get that sense you know that i got in the documentary when you talk about the happy childhood it's like that's how you get to stay a kid longer it's like if you've got a really really happy childhood um then um you can bring that forward in a way that I don't think is is possible if you didn't. Like you don't get to stay a kid. Like and you still have that kind of wide-eyed wonder and enthusiasm about what you do that allows you to continue to do this character that you co-created in 1981. You know, a lot of people if they don't have that that ability to enjoy the fantastic and that ability to enjoy um the kind of, I don't want to say juvenile because I think that some people see that as a um, pejorative word, but I, I think it in a good way, an adolescent sensibility, the way Ray Bradbury was able to keep an adolescent sensibility his entire life. And so you, I, I met him many, many times over the years and, um, and right up to maybe a month and a half before um, he passed away, he was the same guy and he was just funny and cool and he seemed like that kid you hung out with when you were 12 years old. And that, I think, powered his ability to be able to keep writing what he wrote for as long as he wrote it. And do you think that what is it that brings you back to continue to do Nexus, um, which is now going on, well, shoot, we're above 35 years now, right? Yeah, it is. We actually celebrated the 35th anniversary in this last year, 2016. Wow. I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain that my nature and, and, and the way I've been able to uh, just keep going. Um, and I, I'm having a hard time thinking of, um, of something that <clears throat> could lend itself to some precise explanation. But uh, <clears throat> I, I know that the, the good childhood had a, had a lot to do with it. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I can't explain why I've been able to keep that, that uh, ch- childlike optimism within myself because uh especially with the depression that would come about um so i'm gonna have to you know really kind of reach in myself within myself and think of something to happen i know that one thing that one kind of telltale moment happened when i was uh i was uh i was 33 years old and i was i had just moved from wisconsin down to to los angeles here in pasadena Mm -hmm. And I remember being absolutely devastated by the uh, uh, the dating process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, trying to find a, a woman, a girl that was that was genuine and didn't uh, didn't end up hurting me mm-hmm. was <clears throat> was becoming an issue that was that was so paramount to my to my day to day thriving. That I I didn't want to be here anymore. I just said, well, if this is this if this biological prerogative is so difficult to to find a mate, find somebody genuine and in nice, I don't think I want to be here. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would I want to keep going through this process of being hurt all the time by these crazy women <laughs> that I met really anywhere? It's it's not it's not confined to any one place. It's everywhere, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I just thought this was an absurdity that I just didn't want to have to go through for the rest of my life. And if it was if it wasn't for having met Janelle, mm-hmm. which <clears throat> the story of meeting her, her uh, the story of meeting Janelle was profound in in ways that 
if I, if I were to explain the, the full story to people, they would look at me like it was something out of a out of a a, a supernatural TV show. Yeah, <clears throat> because the events that came together uh, seemed to be almost uh, I don't know what do you call it um, programmed so, by fate. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, it really did seem to have aspects of being programmed by fate to it, uh, as though that life wanted to keep me around a little longer <laughs> yeah. instead of succumbing to uh, the the pain factor with uh, the dating situations. Mm-hmm. And I did find Janelle. And, and um, one of the things that I remember a fortune teller telling me before I met Janelle was, you're going to meet a woman on a trip that you're going on, which was true. I was going to hitchhike mm-hmm. for the second time in my life. The first time was hitchhiking out to Youngstown, Ohio to meet my artistic idol at the time, Paul Glacey. <clears throat> and the second time was just going out to go out, I think, just to challenge myself one more time. <clears throat> but uh, what the fortune teller had mentioned to me was meeting a girl that would take all the pain out of my heart. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I and I, I have no hesitancy in bringing these kind of things up because this is something everyone goes through. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think the worst, one of the worst things you can do in life is to keep... Uh, deep emotions that are common to everyone to yourself because by doing that you don't you don't you separate things rather than bring things closer and because of the fact that almost everyone goes through this you're doing everyone a disservice who's going through this moment by making them feel a little more closed off by not bringing it up and that's just not the way I want to I want to live my life right that's amazing that's a great way of putting it too well, the, um, I think we're pretty much gone through a lot of the um, the history and, and everything else. And again, I really want to thank you for being on the show, and um, you know, for sharing um, portions of your story with us and with the with my listeners. And um, and real quick before we before we head off, I want to remind everybody that um, that Steve has a show up this this entire month, so the entire month of January at La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, the next show we got the pick of the weekly and the LA weekly for the opening the um, the show in the second gallery is um, the cartoons show for cartoons magazine it's a continuation of a show that was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and um, also want to thank Albert Queller for helping out with that but the um, you know when, when you walk in you see these pieces and you know the first piece right in the um, when you walk in the room you've got that world's finest cover the uh, Superman holding the flag and Batman in the background. At the end of that wall, you know, you, you walk past and you've got, um, you know, the Doc Savage Man of Bronze. You've got that beautiful um, uh, Wonder Woman piece. And then you can either go into the next room or continue around in the circle. And you've got um, some Nexus pieces. And you've got the Captain Kirk piece, which is great. And um, then the, there's the Cowgirl series and some erotica, um, some nudes. And, and then some more... Um, published comic book stuff and it's just it really captures a full life and it captures aspect of reality and aspects of fantasy and heroism and you know the kind of things that I think make comic books kind of the American um, pantheon you know it's um certainly the the Greeks had their gods and goddesses and demigods and um, in America we have um, our sports figures and we have our our superheroes and I think that there's been a big push to make both of them more dark. And so I love that you're still doing Nexus, which has this kind of sense of hopefulness. And it's a multi-generational affair at this point. And, um, and we all keep hoping at some point that, you know, that it does become an animated series. I saw the test, and the tests look great. 
And uh, sooner or later, someone's going to wise up and they're going to be like, hey, we need, we need this in our lives. We need to do this. <clears throat> One thing I want to say before we go is a personal message to people out there that may find themselves despairing at times <clears throat> due to the difficulty of achieving what you what you want to get out of your life and it uh, yes it, it it takes it takes a certain amount of uh character to keep uh believing when you most people tend to live and find themselves living in a world where everything is kind of they're almost like being stoned to not believe <clears throat> in what uh they know that they want to do with their life and and i just uh i i want to encourage them to believe exactly the opposite of what most people tell them you're here for a reason. You're here with a particular set of talents, and and uh, and it's very important that you spend your life attempting to achieve those things that you know you're here to do. No better place to end than that. Again, thanks, Steve. Thanks for being on the show, and um, we'll uh, we'll have somebody next week. Um, we do what we do weekly um, at the gallery. It sits day after day after day. And I want to thank you again for listening to Podsequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Podsequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.